0: This podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network.
1: Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states.
0: Now, problems are accumulating everywhere, of course, because of the conflict in Ukraine, Putin's war on Ukraine, and there are other problems as well for the British government in particular, the economy, inflation at 10.5%, and as yet, the problems of Northern Ireland unresolved despite the fact that the European president, Ursula von der Leyen, came to London, signed up with Rich Sunak for the Windsor Framework, which is the latest an attempt to settle the dispute about the Northern Protocol. That has been stuck, and I wonder what the European attitude to that is. There also, of course, in Europe have been developments, Viktor Orban and Georgia Maloney, the respective leaders of Hungary and Italy, have uh, been shifting in their alliances. And we're joined now to discuss all of this by Suzanne Lynch. Suzanne is Chief Brussels Correspondent for Politico and the host of a very good podcast called EU Confidential. Suzanne, let's deal with the Windsor framework first. Ursula von der Leyen flying to London, um, meeting the king. <laughs> but more importantly, signing this agreement that's known as the Windsor Framework, for her to come to London, meet Rishi Sunak, sign the declaration, would, it, would that imply that the EU believed that this was a done deal?
2: I think it very much did, Eamon. I mean, there was a lot of pomp and ceremony associated with that visit over on the Eurostar uh, by Ursula von der Leyen uh, to to England. Um, And there was very much a sense that her presence there was suggesting this is signed, sealed and delivered. So already we're getting a sense that, you know, the EU has moved on here. Just last week, we had an EU summit where all the 27 leaders were gathered for two days, including the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar. And, you know, nobody was really talking about the Windsor Framework. Nobody was talking about the UK. Now, the leaders did have to kind of give their assent earlier in the week, last week. Uh, there was a meeting of EU ministers and they had to kind of give the green light to two kind of procedural um, matters that have to be uh agreed at the EU level for the Windsor framework to take effect. But this was always seen as quite technical and that there'd be no big pushback. And that's really what happened there. So the ministers kind of signed off and that said, that's fine. Effectively said they're happy with what uh, Ursula von der Leyen agreed and are ready to move on. So now what you're hearing here is a lot about, um, I was just at an event this week where there was talk about, you know, maybe a new chapter for Britain-EU relations in yes. the sense that, We've already seen some cooperation on Ukraine, uh, but also on the issues like sanctions and all those bigger geopolitical issues. They're hoping now that this can kind of unlock a bit of that, although there was a cancellation of the king's uh, trip to Paris this week because of the strike, so yes. um, <laughs> that that didn't happen in the end.
0: Uh, no, but uh, the the question is, the DUP are the ones holding this up. Mm. Sunak has managed to confront his own, European Research Group hardline backbench uh, Brexiteers successfully, really, despite uh, Boris Johnson supporting them. The problem is delivery, and the problem remains the DUP. Is Europe's patience endless on this matter? Because they. it seems to me that they gave away rather a lot in the negotiations in terms of the jurisdiction of the European Court, for example.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, no, you're, you're right in that like a part of the trick of this was that both sides could kind of claim victory. And I think it's in the EU's interest that, as I said there, you know, it just kind of gets passed here. There's not big scrutiny of it. Everyone says, great, it's it, it finished. We're happy with it. But if there's a, st- a situation now, which is now likely, obviously, because the DUP is not backing this, that the whole thing now is up for discussion again, I think that's dangerous ground because yes. then you're going to get more scrutiny. And people saying, Well, hang on, what's going on here? We thought this was finished, et cetera, et cetera. And as well as the EU countries that signed off on it last week, the European Parliament has to do some work and it, it it's got a procedure to go through. And, you know, you've got MEPs down in, in Strasbourg and here in Brussels who'll be looking at this. And some of them may be uncomfortable with the, you know, the rights that the, this, that Northern Ireland is getting, even though the UK is not in the EU. Like, there were a few whispers about, oh, well, is this a precedent for, yes. for other parts of, um, Europe on the fringes, say, that are not really in, not really out, you know. And and the Irish have had to argue, no, no, this is a unique situation because of the history in Northern Ireland and that we don't want a land border, etc. But uh, what the Irish position would be uh, is that they don't want this conversation to restart and have these kind of, you know, prying eyes, if you like, or more scrutiny of what was agreed because then questions could be asked by MEPs about exactly what they're signing up to.
0: Now, our understanding... Around here was that if the UK didn't deliver or didn't make an effort, a successful effort to deliver, that the issue of trade was very much on the agenda, the possibility of a trade war. There are, uh, the British economy is in rag order. They need a, a trade war like they need a hole in the head. Mm. But if they can't confront the DUP successfully, And they are still holding out. How bad can this get for the the British government?
2: It can get very bad. If this was to derail and uh, unravel at this point, I think ultimately we would be looking at a trade war. And this is where, you know, this is where the EU, like the fact that it didn't come up among EU leaders was a good sign last week. The EU leaders are happy to let it be dealt with at a kind of lower institutional level. But the moment, you know, it gets up to the uh, level where you've got like the, the prime ministers of the big countries, like France and Germany, for example, getting involved, like we saw back, obviously, at the top of the ne- height of the Brexit negotiations a few years back. Well, then, you know, that's a sign of trouble. So um the fact is that, you know, Germany in particular and France, and and I think one of the big stories of Brexit over the last few years has been the hardening stance of Germany on this, uh, particularly yes. under the uh, relatively new Chancellor Olaf Scholz. Obviously Angela Merkel was in charge for most of the Brexit and negotiations and indeed the Brexit vote. But he in particular did not have a good relationship with Boris Johnson. Um and really, you know, is in no mood to start any kind of uh, renegotiation of this. He's got his own problems. He's got a coalition government he's trying yes. to keep together. Um He's got, you know, Germany are really facing all these economic consequences of as they try to get off Russian gas. There's a whole debate now about China and how far do you you decouple from China? You know, they have bigger, they're big economic issues themselves, like no more than any other country in Europe with the cost of living crisis and and those political fragilities in Berlin with this three party coalition. You know, there is no appetite to go any further, I would say to assuage uh, UK concerns. I think Europe felt they went as far as they can go. As I said there at the beginning, they did go really further than people would have thought. And uh, there is certainly no mood to reopen this again, if it is to unravel now because of the DUP.
0: Yeah, and uh, I mean, just to clarify, the the North of Ireland will be part of the single market, will have the advantage of the single market. There's no way that can happen without the European Court uh, having... Uh, some jurisdiction, correct?
2: Exactly, because people yep. in Europe, you know, other EU countries will say, hang on, we can't just let other, you know, other jurisdictions have access to the single market. That's the deal. It, you're back to the, you can't have your cake and eat it. You're yes. either in or out. And the, 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 the beauty of this deal was that you, they're in and out. And um, the the Irish diplomats, you know, won that argument very early on in the discussion. And it was almost like the UK, in particular, Boris Johnson, belatedly woke up to what they had signed up for. So there is willingness, and I think that the timing here is helping the the Irish position because of this looming anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. Yes. It's kind of focusing minds and reminding people of the of the peace dividends, etc., and reminding them of what's at play here. And you know, we've had various events here in Brussels, low level enough. But we we had you know Bertie Hearn was here a few weeks ago at an event. Um, we had you know the Chris Heaton Harris Northern Ireland Secretary. He's an interesting person. In all this yes. he's an MEP himself. He knows how Europe works. And that's one of the ironies a lot about a lot of the Brexiteers, like Boris Johnson being number one. He worked here as a journalist uh, for <laughs> I many don't years. Think he's
0: fondly remembered.
2: Yes. And he, he grew up. He went to school at one point in, in Brussels. So, you know, you, you have these people and it can be quite useful that somebody like Chris heaton Harris knows how Brussels works. Um, so they, they've been here. They've been stressing this whole peace a- aspect of things. And that has given them, I think, I think it's, it's bought time for the process. But I think there are concerns about what's going to happen next month with this anniversary. Um, of course, uh, you know, the, one of the problems for negotiators is the DUP don't particularly, if they've said, said this on the record, don't particularly see Biden as a friend of Ireland anyway. So if they, yes. if are you know, dangling this visit of a US president, is not going to, to win them over. Um, but it undoubtedly will get international pickup in a huge way now next month. Uh, when this visit happens and, uh, you know, that but but the idea that this could drag on after it, that will not go down well here at all.
0: No, and, uh, and just to, to finish about this particular subject, Rishi Sunak signed the accord with uh, Ursula von der Leyen. It's Rishi has to deliver, doesn't
2: he? Absolutely. And he's done better than a lot of people expected by bringing his own party with him and effectively defying his predecessors, including Boris Johnson. Um, But obviously the DUP, you know, government needs to happen in Northern Ireland. They're still uh, refusing to do that. And that does have implications for this deal and, and how the EU looks at that. But as I say, the longer this goes on, you know, the worse it is. They need to get this wrapped up. Uh, The officials here feel like that, that, you know, we've got this big breakthrough. We did the whole uh, photo shoot with with Rishi and Ursula. It's time to move on. And any idea that this is going to resurface now will not go down well.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
0: Let me ask you about the general mood across the European Union and the member states as things get tougher with the Russian-Ukraine conflict. Um, Interestingly, this week, there was some movement by two significant politicians, Giorgio Maloney, uh, the new prime minister in Italy, and Viktor Orban also. Orban had been sympathetic, should we say, to Vladimir Putin, had been, you know, not too keen to join any effort against uh, Putin for his invasion of Ukraine. He uh, has also been moving. Both of them are significant figures in terms of the, the unity of Europe are they?
2: They certainly are I mean that's been one of the challenges of the EU to keep your 27 countries together and um, like what the EU has done in a nutshell since the war started a little over a year ago is introduce a series of sanctions so over 10 packages of sanctions but Hungary as those sanctions you know the further you got down the more difficult they were as you went along the sanctions route it was easy easy enough to do the first set of sanctions but as they got more tricky Then you heard some member states kind of raising their hand quietly saying, hang on, how is that going to affect us? Yeah. And Hungary was one of those countries that put a veto effectively back around um, around the six, seven sanctions package was causing, you know, was was, was raising questions. Eventually kind of got on board, but some concessions were made. So Hungary has always been uh, the voice of uh, skepticism about, um, you know, the EU's commitment to the war. In saying that, though, Orbán, uh, Viktor Orban, an increasingly autocratic leader who won re-election by landslide again last year, he is kind of, tre- you know, he's got two uh, d- impulses because they're a member of the EU, but Hungary is also a member of NATO. And, you know, yes. So it- it's kind of in between. NATO, uh, you know, was set up after World War Two as a kind of a, an anti Soviet, you know, a bulwark against so- the Soviet Union. And in one way, the Ukraine war has kind of given it back a purpose, some could say. I mean, I must make a judgment on that. I'm just saying all of a sudden, NATO was faced with this Russian war in Ukraine. And um, so w- it was interesting this week in Hungary. The Hungarians were the only members of NATO apart from Turkey not to ratify Finland and Sweden's bid to join NATO. So they want to join NATO now, Finland and Sweden, particularly Finland, which shares this huge border with Russia. So incidentally, Eamon, it means that Ireland are losing people now. There used to be six EU member states that weren't members of NATO. After yes. Finland and Sweden join NATO, if they do, if this is ratified, there'll only be four. So yes. the numbers are dwindling, you know, of the of the neutral EU countries. But But anyway, the... Hungary had been kind of holding out on ratifying the Finnish and Swedish uh, bid. So this week, uh, Hungary did, just uh, earlier on on Monday, vote to ratify Finland's membership into NATO. But it's kind of copying Turkey in that it hasn't made a decision on Sweden. They were supposed to kind of go together. So you can see Orban kind of showing his muscle or, you know, saying, look, we don't have to do this. Even though I think the feeling is that ultimately they will. So there's an awful lot of posturing a lot by Hungary ultimately to come in line, but they want to show you know, he wants to show he's the tough man uh, as long as possible and and manages to push it just as far as he can before ultimately kind of going in line before the I mean I've heard people say that here during the EU summits, he was here last week, for example, and there wasn't a word from Orban. That he you know he's in these meetings and he doesn't say much.
0: Well there is a financial consideration, Suzanne, isn't there, for Hungary. There's money and it's billions that the Commission have not handed over because of the lack of uh, democratic accountability, should we say. I mean, he's very on the edge of being a dictator, if not over a particular edge. Uh, And at some stage, will that pose a problem for the EU.
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's the most, like, it's fascinating what's happening between Hungary and the EU and indeed a lot of the Eastern member states. Like, I was four and a half years away from Brussels and since I've come back in 2021, it was one of the big changes I saw that a lot of these Eastern European countries, including Hungary, Orban has been around a long time, but he's become more right wing, basically. And Poland as well. Like, and they're becoming, you know, Rightfully, they're members of the EU. A country like Poland is a huge country. Um, And they have got very dubious uh, rule of law standards. Yes. Media freedom, big issue around that in Hungary. Yes. And the LBGT. This is a huge problem for the EU because how can the EU, you know, lecture other countries or, you know, even China or Russia when it's actually got some members of its own? That yes. uh, are not adhering to what we would say in Ireland. In Ireland, we would uh, accept as common uh, expectations in terms. Yeah,
0: of y- shared values. It would exactly. come under that that um, headline, wouldn't it?
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, Biden this week is having this. Joe Biden is having this summit of democracy, summit for democracy. It's something they they pitched, and um, the first ones in twenty twenty one. Now it, it's not going to get much traction. But um, as far as we we're hungry, didn't get an invite to that. So you've got the situation yes. that like the US is not even inviting a member of the EU. So it, it's a big problem for Europe. And um, But as you said there, yeah, they have it, it's very complex and it gets very technical. But effectively, the EU has w- withheld money uh, from yes. Poland and Hungary as a kind of carrot and stick effect to try and get them to change. But you'd wonder, I was at something last year over in Eastern Europe, and I really got the sense that that doesn't play well either, because then urban... Or the Polish government can, can use the EU as a bogeyman. Say, look, they're they're pressure, they're blackmailing us. They're pressurizing us to change our laws just to give yes. us money. The,
0: who <laughs> who has the the biggest stick or well, carrot or carrot in this? I mean, it, it is a kind of shadow over the EU that you have a guy who's kind of not much of a democrat. Mm-hmm. He, he is, as you point out, uh, Suzanne, he's up in the ante all the time yeah. uh, on press freedom, gone, rule of law, virtually gone. Mm-hmm. And is that sustainable?
2: Well, it, it kind of... Unfortunately, and what,
0: what do the Europe the people in Brussels say? Um, um, that, they that
2: it, it, it It has to be sustainable unless, you know, there was talk after Brexit that could another country leave and yes, where that would possibly, I'm not saying it's going to happen, people were looking at places like Hungary, that it's no longer compatible, that it, it, it sees itself, you know, its values, etc., as you just mentioned, yes. and not the values of the EU and the EU has standards to join the EU. But there's a really interesting, the EU, for you, when those East Europe, Central and East European countries joined, a, a big bunch, in it, 10 of them joined in 2004, and there's a paradox to of the EU. The EU is actually more powerful when it when it, it can exert influence on countries who are trying to get into the bloc, but yeah. once they're in, there's very little it can do. Right. So you know what can they do now? I mean, they're in; they're they're members. They've got votes. They 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 deserve representation. But I think ho- Poland is actually the bigger concern. Um, Poland and, and what's happened because it's of its size, it's a huge country. It's one of the biggest uh, countries in terms of population in the EU. You know, yes. you can't ignore it. Um, it's got a population of nearly forty million. So much, much bigger than Hungary. And now what's happened in the last year is that Poland has really occupied, and rightly so, a lot of people would say, the moral high ground because it took a very strong view yes. on the Russian invasion. It took in so many refugees. It's been leading the calls for help for uh, for Ukraine. And in fact, it was interesting, last year, the, the Ursula von der Leyen gives her big speech. It's called the State of the Union, um, a kind of a copycat of the American State of the Union speech, yes. which gives it every September in Strasbourg and year I was there and it was interesting she kind of made some comments saying we didn't listen to you enough, our Eastern members, you were right yes. about Russia so, you know, people they they have got a lot of kudos, rightly so so it's very difficult for the EU to say to Poland oh listen, we're going to hold back your money because you have to change X, Y and Z when they're actually being to the forefront on the Russian thing, so now it is interesting, there are elections in Poland later this year, so that's going to be hugely interesting and yes. uh, and everyone's going to watch that. But um, And Donald Tusk, the former head of the European Council, yes. a really interesting guy. He was involved in the Solidarity Movement. He's very involved now in opposition politics. So that's going to be something interesting to watch at the end of the year.
0: Yes, and Poland have said that if Putin goes much further, they will go to war. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a question of Moldova, and uh, it's very, very tricky. But the, the Poles are prepared to go to war With Ukraine, they say, but Mm. as you that buys them a bit of credit, perhaps. Yes. But the long-term compatibility, should we say, between uh, Hungary and the rest of the EU and Poland and the rest of the EU, it is a problem, isn't it for the for the EU? Because I mean, if you go back to Georgia, Maloney, and Italy now, Italy is a huge country. It has massive problems, the economics, and also geographically with the immigration issue. That's another country that isn't exactly sharing European values or might not in the future.
2: Absolutely. I mean, her election was greeted with much trepidation here in Brussels. You remember she took over from Mario Draghi, Super Mario, who was um, former head of the ECB, who was very well respected here. Um, and there were a lot of fears. Now, it, it, she's, again, when she comes to these EU summits, it has been, you know, relatively uh, low-key. And again, it comes down to money, Eamon, because the yes. official Italian economy is so big and has been so, well, troubled in some ways for a long time uh, that um, it, when the EU announced its big recovery fund back during the height of the COVID pandemic, Italy uh, was standing to, to receive a huge amount of money. So it kind of, and but there are conditions to say that, Yes. So she knows that her population, her citizens know that they want to get the EU money, and so she's not going to jeopardize that.
0: Right. Well, so money is is the the big carrot.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, and that was the same with us when. When you're probably too young to remember when Albert was Albert Reynolds was T. shock waving. No, I do
2: you remember? I do remember w- waving
0: a cheque in Edinburgh.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You see, we are. It's it's interesting the way that that we we were once those you know the more of a recipient of EU money. So, you know, she knows that. But there is, I mean, she's she's very right wing. Um, and some of her, I mean, again, she's got a coalition, which is interesting as well because it always changes things. But, but her big issue, when she's fighting on now, what I think her focus is, is the migration issue. Yes. And well, they're, she,
0: they're very exposed to that, aren't they? They
2: are. And to be fair, she, there is some sympathy for that because, I mean, that it's a topic for a whole other day. The EU's migration policy is so fragmented and you've got the countries at the south, usually, like Greece and Italy, who who receive most migrants arriving by both these awful images we see in the sea. Yes. Um, and then you've got countries up north, like the Netherlands and Germany, who are kind of get a lot of migrants who then travel up to those countries for work. But they're saying there's always a constant attention because they're saying that under this EU rule, the Dublin Agreement, actually, it, it migrants are supposed to stay in the first country they arrive yes. and claim asylum. And they're saying Italy and Greece are not holding up their side of the bargain. But to be fair to Italy and Greece, they're getting m- many, many more migrants than anyone yes. else. So. You know, their argument would be, well, there should be better burden sharing. We should share around. So, but the awful tragedy that happened um, last month uh, with more migrant deaths. I mean, her government came under huge criticism about that voting tragedy, about how, you know, when did these authorities know, should they have gone out quicker to try and save these people who died in these horrific circumstances? And she was even getting backlash, a lot of backlash within Italy too. So um, it is by far the dominant issue for Italy at the moment is migration. But she's benefiting, I think, a little bit. Now, I'm exaggerating a bit, but the EU as a whole has moved a little bit to the right on migration. So right. like, when she's at the meeting saying it's not, you know, we have to toughen up on people smugglers and we have to toughen up, uh, you know, and not, not encourage people to come. She's probably got more support from that than she would have back in 2015 when Angela Merkel was opening Germany Yes, I mean, quite rightly in my view, but, but you know, to, to migrants, the thing has shifted now. So she's probably not as isolated as she may have been if, if this was happening maybe five years ago, I'd say.
0: Right. Just want to ask you a final question, Suzanne, about the uh, Northern Ireland Protocol and the uh, patience the EU are likely to have with the, the UK if Sunak does not get it sorted. What are we talking about time-wise?
2: Well, I think there's a few things. The, the whole one of the things that it unlocked was um, the EU's involvement in the Horizon Research Program. That's huge yes. for universities, and there was also a kind of a memorandum of, of understanding on the whole financial services, which is complex but important for the City of London. Um, so those two things, I think, could be first to be in the firing line, right? Been kind of put back on track. Um, but then it would take a while. I think I don't think we're look. I mean, I'm not. one thing is that you know it would take maybe. I mean, my guess would be you know, we're nearing the summer, you know, by the time this would really fall apart, that it'd be next autumn. Right. But then we're getting into, it's only, you know, less than a year to the European l- Parliament elections and a new commission. Yes. So, it, it remains to be seen would they do anything radical before that? Right. So, um, look, it's still, I don't want to be alarmist, it's still in everyone's interest to get this relationship back on track. But if it has to, if it comes to it, I do not think that the big countries like Germany and France, and ultimately, I mean, they're the ones who really are going to, yes. you know, like everything here, to be honest, uh, what they think matters. And they're happy to let it go now. But any suggestion to give them further concessions, uh, it's just not going to happen. And um, I think they're prepared to walk away from the deal.
0: Okay, Suzanne, so I'm very grateful to you for joining us. I understand Suzanne Lynch is Chief Brussels Correspondent for Politico and the host of EU uh, Confidential, a very good podcast. Uh, that's in direct competition with us. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thank you very much, uh, Suzanne. Thanks, Uh,
2: great to join you.
0: And we're grateful to Suzanne, to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon.
1: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.